who's in charge here? <laughs> Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC, the one and only Mike Madrid. Good to see you, Mike. Great to be back with you. Good morning, good morning. Also returning to the Roundup is Lucy Caldwell, veteran political strategist and tech founder. She's a board advisor at the Renew Democracy Initiative and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, as always, great to have you back. It's so good to be with both of you. Up first this week, the victories for Democrats and abortion rights advocates in Virginia and Ohio and the New York Times-Siena poll that showed Trump leading Biden in five battleground states. Then we'll discuss the foreign influence campaigns shaping our culture and our politics from TikTok to universities. Then we'll dive into Donald Trump's plans to pursue far, far more authoritarian policies in a second term and hire lawyers to help him do it who don't care about winning in court. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll discuss the third Republican primary debate, To get ad-free access to that part of the show, plus many more episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of today's show notes. On Tuesday, Ohio voted to make the right to an abortion protected by the state constitution, and they legalized recreational marijuana for people 21 and older. The big takeaway here is that the margins of victory were huge. Both ballot initiatives won by about 14 points. Then in Kentucky, Democratic Governor Andy Beshear won re-election over the current state attorney general, Republican Daniel Cameron, by four points. In 2019, he came into office after he beat incumbent Matt Bevin by less than half a point. In Virginia, Democrats kept control of the state Senate and flipped the House of Delegates, so they now control the state legislature. In Mississippi, Incumbent Republican Governor Tate Reeves held off a push by Democratic nominee and a distant cousin of Elvis, Brandon Presley. And these off-year elections came just days after a New York Times-Siena College poll in six battleground states that really sent X and the cable news class into a frenzy. That poll included voters in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Key takeaways in a head-to-head matchup, Donald Trump led Biden in five of those six states. Uh, he led in Wisconsin. Uh, uh, Biden, led Trump, Biden led in Wisconsin. Trump held a double-digit lead in Nevada, 11 points, and four to six points in other states. Trump plus five in Arizona, Trump plus six in Georgia, Trump plus five in Michigan, Trump plus four in Pennsylvania. Notably, these are all outside the margin of a decently large sample. On Wednesday, in his New York Times newsletter, The Tilt, Nate Cohn wrote that the results on Tuesday don't change the picture for Biden heading into 2024, and that the polls show there are millions of voters who dislike Joe Biden, but are supportive of other Democrats and liberal causes. So we've got two very different looking pictures here, Mike and Lucy. First, let's talk about the elections, the returns, the key takeaways here, and then we'll talk about the poll. Um, Lucy, why don't you lead off about the elections? What did you make of them? And uh, and I think we should start with Ohio. It seems to be the most noteworthy. 
Yeah, I'm not sure that there's a a better argument for putting gerrymandering back into our focus <laughs> early and often than the returns from Ohio. Uh, over over this week, this past week, we're we're told a lot about how how Ohio is becoming a red state with red lawmakers, red state lawmakers, um, and yet you can see how the core of the Ohio voting populace is in a very different place and has very strong feelings. This is the second time in just a few months that they have um, fought back against the overreach by the state legislature, by the overreach of Republican electeds in Ohio, um, both on you know their their own ability as voters to uh, pass citizen-driven initiatives, as they did this week, um, uh, but but also uh, more generally to, I think, speak out. So Ohio is very interesting to me in that way. One of the things that I think is delightful, let's say, about how people are reading the tea leaves about Ohio is that um, Republicans in Ohio, including J.D. Vance, the recently elected U.S. Senator from Ohio, um, actually took 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 the time in the postmortem of Ohio to to acknowledge how badly they'd been beaten and how they they need, you know, anti-choice advocates, you know, need to change their messaging. But the message was not maybe we need to moderate on our abortion stance to make ourselves more palatable. Um, to the voting public because we've just gotten our clock cleaned for the second time in a matter of months. But actually, his TLDR was, so we need to double down on a years-long battle um, to make America a, a so-called pro-life country. So it's it's interesting because Republicans and conservatives really delivered a gift to Democrats in in a way, in the wake of in the wake of of Dobbs, uh, in the the form of a thing that really really activates voters in a way that they have never been activated before, including voters who consider themselves pro life, but who don't want to see this kind of of government overreach. Um, and yet, it seems like rather than take stock of what has happened, Republicans and conservatives are actually just going to double down. And I know you asked me to focus on Ohio, but. While I'm on the subject, I just want to say one thing about Virginia that stood out to me a lot along the same lines, and I'm sure Mike will have things to say about this, which is that one of the most striking things to me in Virginia this week, and Virginia is a weird state because they often um, go against the grain based on whoever is most, whatever party is most recently been elected. They elect the other party in the next year more than other states do. But it was an interesting story of Glenn Youngkin, who, you know, is the uh, the fleece vest guy, finance guy, you know, your friendly neighborhood, Wall Street moderate turned governor. And you would think that someone in Glenn Youngkin's position, Glenn Youngkin, Republican incumbent governor, huge stake in getting Republicans elected at the state legislative level, really hoped to be able to take control of Um, both chambers of the state legislature in Virginia. Glenn Youngkin, based on his profile, you would expect that he would have been out campaigning in recent weeks, telling Virginia voters, a vote for Republicans is a vote for common sense, moderate Republicans, you know, like yours truly. 
Instead, in the 11th hour, Glenn Youngkin was doubling down on hard right talking points, including promising that and pledging to Virginia voters that if the Republicans prevailed and took control of the state legislature in Virginia, that he promised that he had sought pledges and assurances from those Republican candidates that as members, they would push through an abortion ban, an, an, an early term abortion ban. And that on its face is so bizarre. But when you start to think about what were Glenn Youngkin's advisors telling him, right? What were they telling him that caused him to say that in the lead up to the election? What they were telling him is that the math that they saw is that the Republican Party has so lost its ability to be trusted by moderate voters, has so lost its ability to connect with voters who care about these issues, that their best approach would be to go deliver talking points to drive up the core of the Republican base to participate in the election. And it failed. (laughs) But it doesn't mean that that wasn't still the right call. And it just reflects this moment in time in our in our dialogue where where, you know, we're, we're no longer necessarily even speaking to swing voters necessarily just because of how degraded the rights Mm. discourse has become. (sighs) That's a really good point. Mike, let's stay on the elections before we turn to the poll. Um, What were the key takeaways for you? Feel free to speak to Virginia specifically, but key takeaways about the elections. Well, let me talk about Ohio first, because I think it's probably the most instructive as we kind of still are dealing with this post-Dobbs world. And again, Lucy said something important that we should be mindful of, which is without the Dobbs decision, this would still not be a a political driver the way um, abortion rights has really not been, except for the younger female, more... um, uh, progressive demographic, which is really what which is really what the Democrats have used as a tool to motivate youth the youth vote more than anything else. And, and let me explain why. Married women in Ohio voted fifty three yes forty seven no, which is fifty three for abortion rights, forty seven no, which is a shockingly low number compared to the narrative that you're hearing. In fact, it's exactly it's exactly the same number as men overall. And so let me explain that again. Married women in Ohio voted by just six points uh, for the yes position, for uh, abortion rights position. The dramatic, the dramatic gap was between unmarried men and unmarried women that drove this massive margin. More importantly, only 12% of the electorate was between 18 and 29 years old. 12 Okay, young people did not show up. <laughs> now, th- this that may sound like, oh my gosh, this is bad news. I think it's actually great news, and I'm going to tell you why. It means that there is that this hemorrhaging that we have seen from the Republican base since 2018 has continued yet again. College-educated voters are leaving, and this is really important. They're leaving on cultural issues. Okay, they're they're abandoning the party. Ohio's a perfect example: abortion and the legalization of marijuana. Right? Those are these are cultural issues, and they're leaving the party in the same way they did in 2018, in 2020, in 2022, now 2023. 
Now, again, one time can be an aberration, twice can be a coincidence, three times is a trend, four times it's like, get your head out of your ass, it's not going to change. Like this is, And then I don't want to say realignment because it, one, that's too big of a word for a faction. But what we also found was 20% of self-identified Trump voters were voting for this abortion rights position. So when we look under the hood, there's some really good news. I think there's some fascinating news, and there's some really significant, consistent, data-driven news about this issue specifically. And as I've said time and time again on this show and throughout my career, you know, history is made on the margins here. These are big when you look at the percentages, but when you look at the underlying crosstabs and what was actually going on, it's not like this is anything shocking. This is something that is consistent. This happened in Kansas. This happened in Ohio. The only thing that's really shocking to me about this issue and the break that happened was that it's, well, the the measure was on the ballot. So that's what drove this sort of vote share. The question is when you start to look at the Kentuckys, right? You start to look at the Virginias, um, and Virginia is a little bit of a quasi thing because of what, what Lucy mentioned earlier, which is Youngkin basically said this is coming. If you give me a Republican Senate majority, then this issue becomes more existential, right? These abortion rights start to go away. That's, this is now a, a, an existential issue in a way that it has not been for, since the mid-1970s. Okay? And that is what is changing the motivation of hyperdrive with, 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 with unmarried women. The numbers are, are staggering. Okay? Um, but married women haven't really changed much on this issue. It's not motivating that change, which by the way, they've got a higher propensity to vote incidentally. Okay. So it's, we're, we're, we gotta be real careful when we're talking about how big these yeah. shifts are the and narrative. where they're occurring. The narrative, the narrative is different than the data. Shocking. I know it's politics, right. <laughs> but, but that's, but, but even these minor shifts that are happening culturally consistently are the reason why Republicans are in this demographic doom loop where they keep talking to and keep using the rationale that Lucy just mentioned about the the solution is to keep doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on dumb, right? And they will keep doing it. Why? Because their real base are these non-college educated rural white males. Uh, now, 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 there's a plenty of evidence that there are others moving, and we'll talk about the poll in a second, there are other non-whites moving towards the Republican Party. That is absolutely true. But there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this, for the moment, this cultural war, which in my lifetime, in my political career, culture wars are where the Democrats used to go to die. The Republicans always went to the culture wars to partisanize and throw lightning into an election that they were losing on the economy or on some other issue to bring people back to this norm that they had. That's not working anymore. The, the Democrats are winning on the culture wars. It's also why I'm much more convinced that a Pete Buttigieg or a Gavin Newsom are way stronger, way stronger candidates than a Gretchen Whitmer or a, an A.B. Klobuchar, right? Because the, the, there's this narrative, this DC narrative is just still, oh, look, they can win with the with the, the diner set, right? The the the, the working, you know, the working man, uh, you know, in manufacturing Rust Belt areas. That's bullshit. That's gone. <laughs> look, the, look at the demographics <laughs> last night. The, that was the group yeah. that was the most anti-abortion right. You're not moving those people, so quit trying. Right? Go fish where the fish are. And there's plenty of fish now is what these, this data and these results keep telling us. And it's also why I think the Democratic Party, in its own demographic loop, 
is 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 uh, it, uh, keeps going to these cultural issues because they keep working and they're going to keep doing it and we have to remind ourselves that there is a working class that is being lost here while both parties are talking 90% of the time about culture and culture wars trans rights marriage equality abortion rights legalization of marijuana like these are the driving animating features of the voter base in American politics today. And there's remarkably little discussion about economics when we've got this, this huge class problem that is looming over us. So you're talking about the Gretchen Whitmers and the Amy Klobuchar's who are speaking to blue collar workers versus Gavin. Yeah, this, this, right. blue collar, this blue collar class speak that somehow like everybody goes, oh, who would be the best Democratic candidate? Especially while there's all this hand wringing about Joe Biden. And it always comes down to like, Tim Ryan or Gretchen Whitmer or Amy Klobuchar, who are these guys that are winning over these voters that we've been losing? That's not the right way to look at how to be how to win the race. They're they're using the wrong frame, is what you're saying. They're using 20 years ago frame. Like those voters are gone, right? They're those those voters are not only gone, they hate you. Like they hate the Democratic Party. Doesn't mean that they can't there aren't certain candidates that can win, but in the highly partisan environment of a presidential election. Look right. at the data. They're, the way the way Democrats are winning in Georgia and in Arizona and Wisconsin and in the, the states, the red states that they're picking up is almost exclusively on cultural issues. The margins in urban metro areas are getting so sky high because of cultural issues that they're offsetting the rural uh, imbalance that Trump was able to pop in 2016. That's what's happening. So, so. W- w- it, look, the way uh, Joe Biden comes back and wins is to do exactly what he did in the midterms. We can, you know, segue to the poll at some point, but it's to talk about abortion. It's to talk about pro democracy. It's not to talk about the economy. Remember, Biden's numbers were uh, as bad as they were right now. They were that bad heading into the twenty twenty two midterms, and everybody's like, "This is going to be a Republican wave. This is going to be a Republican tidal wave." No. They weren't. And a lot of us looking at the data were saying, no, that's not going to happen. It's going to be a single-digit victory. This is entirely predictable when you look at the right data sets and what data sets are moving. By the way, I don't think that the polling is wrong. The Siena poll stuff, is not, it's not wrong. Yeah. None of this is wrong. They're just data points informing us as to what the electorate is telling us. That's what a poll is designed to do. The mistake we make is we try to look at them like a horse race. And act right. like one poll yeah. is going to tell us everything about the electorate. Right. That's not how polls work. That's not what they're designed to do. And so if you look at the poll, if you look on the hood of even this poll or any polling, it's basically showing this dynamic. Approval ratings don't matter anymore. You know, uh, um, um, the generic ballot doesn't matter anymore. I mean, it hasn't mattered in years. The, 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 the direction of the economy, it doesn't matter anymore. That, that is not the animating feature of the small segments of the vote that are moving. And that's all that matters in a highly stratified partisan environment. We, we keep talking about like the, the polls like they're this bilateral thing. And, oh, this is Republicans and, and Democrats. And then there's this mythical independent out there that's truly like nonpartisan and is, 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 is reading the newspaper over the coffee table and trying to judge whether or not. Okay. Therefore they're, and that's, that, well, that doesn't actually, exist. Wait. I wanted yeah, to get ahead. on that, though. Yeah, let's go ahead. Because, go ahead. because and I also want to say something about Kentucky briefly, but I actually thought, and, you know, we're kind of dancing around this New York Times-Siena poll that came out over the weekend that has yeah. has everyone wringing their hands. 
Ben, and, and I'll just I'll just say this and then I'll stop, which is that we should pin that and come back to that mythical independent voter or not, because something that no one is talking about in that poll that is really kind of weird and that I'm having trouble wrapping my head around is the pretty big difference between the crosstabs of that poll with partisan leaners versus not. It's a big difference. And I think it it does, it is a good entree to meet to to, okay. to litigate that independent voter question, Mike. So let's well, let's let's talk about that. What are you so first of all, let's just put on the table that the the characterization of this poll, and I don't think it's wrong, is that it looks very, very, very bad, very broadly bad for Biden. Like on any measure, any question they asked. It look, does not look good for him. And the fact that the, you know, five out of the six battleground states that they tested, and by the way, these are states that did not have elections this week. So they're, that it's a completely separate set of states, except for Pennsylvania, which had a Supreme Court election that's noteworthy where the Democrat actually won uh, again. But outside of that, these swing states are not the ones that just had elections. So that's important to keep in mind. Um, and the reaction to this poll is, uh, is sort of the sky is falling. Uh, and Biden's got to turn it around. So, Lucy, what's in the crosstabs that you want to pull out? I want to know what you both think of this. So one of the first things that was, so in the in the last 15 years, pollsters have started making bigger distinctions in polling when they, in, in how they describe uh, results with or without leaners. And, and basically, Mike can speak to this more, but that comes from the idea that, Suddenly, we have to account for the fact that there's a huge, huge block of voters who are now independents. And but are they actually all just partisan leaners? Could we sort them basically into red bucket, blue bucket, or are they something else? Are they truly independents? How swingy are they really? Because if you if you look at the if you just looked at voter demographics right now and you think, okay, independent voters are all swingy, we know that ends up not coming out in the wash, right? One of the independent things doesn't I, mean moderate is the t- is the TLDR. It doesn't mean independent. Yeah, a, <laughs> That's what it does mean. Okay. Well, it it, it doesn't mean. <laughs> go ahead. Go uh, ahead. No, go ahead, Lucy. It does mean that they they say they are registered independents, but it doesn't mean that they don't strongly associate with one party or another. Yeah. Fair to say. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that this poll hinges the thing that has everyone's everyone freaked out is that this poll asked basically if the election were held today and it was a huge poll it asked a lot of questions but the thing that everyone's anchoring to for obvious reasons is you know thinking about the upcoming presidential election in 2024 if the election were held today who would you vote for if the candidates were Joe Biden the democrat and Donald Trump the republican um and then there was some follow up like are you definitely or probably voting for them if you had to decide, who do you vote for? When they included leaners, you had 44% saying Joe Biden, 48% saying Donald Trump, 2% saying another candidate, 3% saying wouldn't vote if those were the choices, and 3% saying don't know. That's with leaners. When you took out leaners, the numbers of people who said that they would not vote or wouldn't vote if those were the choices, went up from 3% to 6%. And the people who said they don't know went up from 3% to 6%. And so 
that to me, in some cases, that difference and all of this being reported on, in, you know, just like sort of pulls in the leaners, that actually in this margin is significant. And it suggests to me that we are ignoring trying to figure out how independents are feeling about this election and that we need to do more <laughs> to figure out where they're going to come out and that we maybe are making quite a lot of assumptions about independence ahead of 2024 that we are kind of pulling out of top lines that perhaps we shouldn't. And I obviously have an interest in this because I want to see independent candidates be successful and I want to see independent voters uh, leverage their influence more. Um, and so, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I say that. <laughs> but I, I just I just think that we are doing so much hand-wringing on this that I'm not sure we're getting into the crosstabs enough on this poll and others. That's all. One thing I want to put out here, uh, Mike, is that the the biggest, maybe the biggest problem for all of these voters was Biden's age. That's the thing that's getting the most traction in the 80 percentile, some, somewhere in the 80s. Everybody, everybody has a problem with his age. They think he's too old to be president. And Trump doesn't have quite that bad a problem with his age. Less people think that about Trump. Um, when, so when this poll came out on Sunday, and we should wrap up this segment, when this poll came out, you posted on threads, you weren't worried about it, and you'd explain later. It's later. What is the TLDR for why you aren't worried about this polling? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but let me try to get to the, the peanut here really quickly. Uh, the, the first is, there's two questions that were asked in this survey where I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not even going to look past this. Like, I'm going to finish my coffee and go enjoy my day, right? Like, this is, <laughs> I, it, and, and again, I think this poll is entirely accurate. It's just understanding what it's, what it's asking and what it's trying to get at. The first question that was asked was, how does, the, how does a generic Democrat do against Trump? Right? Let's take Biden out of it. How does mm -hmm. a generic Democrat do the generic Democrat won every one of those swing states. Okay? Hmm. Let's set that aside for a second. So when it's just a generic Democrat, and we don't put any names behind it, the generic Democrat wins all those swing states. A ham sandwich with a D. Yeah, right? Yeah. And, and, and then the other, the other question, the, the other, uh, I think, important point to look at was, if Donald Trump is convicted and sentenced to prison, would you vote for yeah. him? Biden wins every one of those seats again. <laughs> like, like, it not, okay, like it not only inverts, but it inverts by an order of two or three. Not, I think. Yeah, there's like a 23 point shift in Nevada. And look, guys, the, as I counsel everybody, all we're looking for is movement right now. That's all a poll is good for, but it's incredibly important. It, 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 the, and we could talk about the, the independent shift in just a second because. Yeah, um, look, a move from three to six percent. I would argue that is not significant. That's just my opinion. But the fact that it is moving is okay. That's the significance of it. The numbers don't tell me a whole lot, but I'm looking for movement. That's all I'm looking for right now. Okay, we can talk after the first of the year as this becomes more real. But what that tells me, those two data points on top of Biden's numbers tells me is that the Democrats, as much as they're not comfortable or don't like Joe Biden for whatever reason, he's too old, he's, he's whatever the hell he is, they're going to come home the same way that they did in the midterms, okay? The, 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 Biden's numbers and the direction of the economy were just as bad as they were right now. And, the, the, and, and not only did the Democrats come home, this is what I was talking about with Ohio earlier. The defections amongst Republicans are beyond a small trickle 
it is the, the a hemorrhaging has started, right? We used to call these the, 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 the Lincoln Project Bannon line voters when I was explaining it's four to six percent. Guys, it's it's hitting 18, 20 percent of Ohio Trump voters are bailing on cultural issues. That's a that is like the, the patient is like in deep trouble on the operating table. Bring in the surgeons because this we could lose this guy. Like it's that's how bad it is for the Republicans right now. Can it be fixed? Of course it can be fixed. But when I'm looking at all of this stuff, looking at all of this data, it's not even that complicated. It's like, wait a second, the last four elections have have situated exactly like this. This week, a, the Network Contagion Research Institute put out a report about how concealed foreign funding of colleges and universities predicts the erosion of democratic values and increase in anti-Semitic incidents on campus. If you haven't heard of NCRI, they conduct research into emerging threats in the cyber social domain. Uh, and as you'd expect, a lot of that is social media. They've partnered with the Anti-Defamation League to study how hate and extremism spread on social media. They've conducted widely cited research about the growth of anti-Semitism on X over the last year. When colleges and universities receive money from foreign donors, they're required to report it to the Department of Education. And in 2019, the Department of Education uncovered billions of dollars in concealed foreign funds contributed to American universities. A lot of it coming from authoritarian regimes. Some of the biggest donors were coming in in the number one slot, Qatar, with $2.7 billion. Number, third, uh, number three slot, China, $1.2 billion. Uh, in the fourth slot, Saudi Arabia with over a billion. And the UAE with almost half a billion. Uh, NCRI used those numbers from the Department of Education investigation to look at how the concealed foreign money correlated with campaigns targeting academic scholars and anti-Semitism on campus. And here's a huge takeaway. Schools that took this undocumented money were almost twice as likely to have a campaign to target, investigate, censor, demote, suspend, or terminate an academic scholar. Uh, they also found that there were higher reports of anti-Semitic rhetoric and the demonization of Israel, and that there were higher levels of anti-Semitic acts on campus if they accepted undocumented money. And that was exacerbated if that money came from countries in the Middle East. There were 200% more anti-Semitic incidents on campuses where they had taken undisclosed money from the Middle East compared to campuses uh, that uh, didn't have undisclosed money from the Middle East. So this topic's been on my mind for a while because we have really clear rules in our campaign system and our political system about foreign money. Uh, it, is, it is a federal crime to accept foreign money into a campaign in the United States. Federal law prohibits any kinds of contributions, whether it's state, local, uh, or federal, uh, from foreign nationals. And if you're going to engage in political activities at the behest of a foreign country or business, you have to register with the Justice Department. And we have these rules in place to limit foreign influence in our politics. But as politicology listeners will know better than most, our politics is a lot bigger than just campaign contributions. And what happens on college campuses does impact our politics. Uh, it shapes the broader culture. And as Mike, you've said many times, uh, uh, our, our politics are downstream of our culture. So this is the big frame here is I wanted to get you both thinking about 
the non-compliance of these universities, the failure of the system to design uh, uh, a, a way to limit and report foreign influence. It just seems to me that the laws we have on the books were conceived at a time where information doesn't flow the way it does now with the speed at which it does now, and that they're inadequate to, to keep up with the way America's adversaries are trying to um, break us from within. Uh, and the, the purpose and intent of the laws that we have is to prevent foreign influence. It seems they're getting around that. And, and I wonder how you think we can address this, if it's possible to address this. But Mike, this dovetails a lot with the way we've talked about information war and, uh, and America is now a country at war. And we're seeing the consequences, I think, of what's been happening, happening on campuses around the country spilling out into the streets and a lot of people are sort of scratching their heads or just standing in horror at, uh, at our elite universities and the, and, the, and the professors who are teaching our students and the students have gone on to, to the top uh, cultural and media institutions in the country praising acts of terrorism. And, uh, and so this is a big windup, but the big frame in here is Foreign countries want to influence what happens in the United States, and they're doing it by influencing our culture instead of trying to, you know, give a Senate candidate a max out contribution in, in exchange for a future favor. That's just, that's old news to these people. So I wanted you both to start thinking about it in that way, and I wonder how you're thinking about it. Lucy? I'm not sure I'm willing to make the same leaps in conclusions about this that I think have been made elsewhere. And I and and I'm not sure that I can make the leap that I think that this funding leads to that kind of activity on campus versus the fact that those campuses are the same types of contexts where you both could see foreign influence foreign actors desiring to have influence over those campuses and for other cultural reasons or or pressures that those campuses also simultaneously could be hotbeds for undergraduate activism or or student activism. For example, as that report notes, Ivy League colleges are disproportionately represented in the highest as the highest funded institutions that these that these foreign countries sent money to. And I could make a lot of arguments about why they're completely disconnected forces that are not related to those foreign countries that would cause the kinds of activism to spring up on those campuses. So I think it's worth I think it's worth spending time on and it's a very long report and I have not had time to read the report in full. I've read some of the coverage, but I, it, it has been hard for me to to get to the bottom of what the what the funding went to in many of these cases. And I think without understanding that, it's hard for me to feel prepared to make a link between that because I could I could easily imagine a thing where it turns out that it was um, funding for some kind of tech transfer or something where I would not be ready to make that jump. I'm not saying that it is not the case. I'm just, I'm personally don't feel prepared to onboard that link yet. Um, I also think that a lot of the coverage of what's happening on college campuses 
has been disproportionately at elite colleges. And there are other reasons that elite colleges become hotbeds for student activism. You know, they tend to de-emphasize preparation for trades and emphasize liberal arts, <laughs> emphasize, you know, like um, more... uh uh, like encouraging more kind of creative output. There's more emphasis on um, on discourse. I also think that they tend to be more likely to be hotbeds for reaction against what the prevailing culture is of the moment in the mainstream. And so I think arguably some of the activism that we've seen among college students. And I think obviously all the caveats, support for Hamas is appalling. A lot of what has happened is appalling. But I think college campuses tend to be the core of backlash against mainstream pervasive view. And the mainstream pervasive view in the US in this most recent episode is overwhelmingly pro-Israel and continues to be so I'm not sure that what we're seeing is so different from what we would otherwise expect. That's all. Okay, that's a oh, that's another tab that you just opened up. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna we'll stay on this frame for a minute. Um, and and Mike, I want to put one other thing on the table for you, uh, and then have you respond, which is the the Chinese piece of this. Um, this spring, earlier this spring. Um, we saw translated in Chinese military reports that they're increasing their efforts in cognitive warfare. Um, and part of that program is an attempt to actually eventually directly assault or disable physical human brains. But now they're implementing cognitive influence campaigns by shaping beliefs and preferences. Uh, platforms like TikTok exemplify this, as we've talked about. The TikTok algorithm has the power to mold public opinion, exploit user data, shape preferences and biases and belief. And we also know that TikTok staff are under the control, essentially, of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and they have a control panel at their fingertips to amplify content and manipulate narratives. And Axios reported last week, there have been nearly four times the number of views to TikTok posts using the hashtag Stand with Palestine globally compared to the hashtag Stand with Israel. And almost all of those views of Stand with Palestine, 87% are under the age of 35. So take, take all of this, take all of this together, I suppose. And how should we be thinking about that level of influence and especially that level of influence on younger Americans? Uh, look, it's extraordinary. I mean, look at the numbers you just rattled off. I mean, that, that's, we have allowed our, our, arguably our main global aggressor to have a much straighter direct an impactful pipeline into the minds of our populace than we have as a country ourselves. And if you if if there's any question as to what kind of damage they can do when there when and or if there's a direct conflict between us and and the Chinese Communist Party or China, uh, just look at what's happening with the with the, the reframing of this entire debate between Hamas and, and Israel. I mean, it's it's the, the the reach is extraordinary, and and I've said on the show numerous times, you know, this, it's something that is I think is a, it's a national security threat. I mean, there's just no question about it. Um, 
I, I do think that when we look back at this time in American history, when we realize how destabilized our democracy uh, has become, and when we look at how our institutions have lost faith and credibility, and and frankly have served the interests of foreign actors, and it's not just the academy, although there's it, the academy has its own really unique set of problems. Um, we're gonna we're gonna look back, and I think we're gonna be horrified at how easy it was to simply buy off people. Um, when we look at like nonprofits, for example, um, your your main point is a good one, which is it's not like the Russians come up and they they write a check from the bank account of Russia and give it to a Republican senator, right? Like that's not how they're, they're doing foreign influence. The well, way they're doing Menendez, it is, but anyway. yeah, except for Bob Menendez, he doing, well, even he was taking gold bars, right? Give him he, gold he, bars. Yeah, he wasn't even taking checks. But if you look at like how how the the NRA was compromised with tens of millions of Russian dollars, right? And then we wonder why like we're so paralyzed on this issue where we're literally killing each other. We can't even make these decisions. There's no question that there's a correlation. We can argue how much, but there's clearly a correlation. That's some part of what they're trying to do is find as many weak points within our open society as possible and exploit the hell out of them, especially before they begin a kinetic war somewhere on the globe. Right? There's a reason why China is completely closed. Their internet is completely closed and completely government-operated and sponsored. Is They know what they're doing to us. They don't want us doing what we're, you know, they're doing... We, they don't want that done to them. R- Russia's, you know, uh, not as closed as China, but it's hard to break into, as you know, in conversations we've had mm-hmm. with with folks that are looking mm-hmm. to kind of communicate to the population there in Russia. It's heavily governmentally monitored, and 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 so the academy, you know, there the, again, it's I think it's degrees to which that influence is playing a role. But is there is is it happening? Well, I mean, of course it's happening. Of course it's happening. It's happening in a number of different ways, not just the influence of – when we look back at all the institutions, academia has this unique uh, – with, with the Hamas-Israeli conflict, uh, and there's a number of reasons for it, but it, but it is unique in, in, in the amount of pro-Hamas voices that are there. And that's, that's not a judgment call. It's just kind of an, I think, a, 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 an op- objective observation. I'll make the judgment call. Yeah, you. And, yeah. yeah, and I don't judge anybody who does. I just, I'm not informed enough about it. I, just, I, I look yeah. at it. And I'm like, yeah. why, why is the academy having this? You don't see this on the media. You don't see it in our governmental institutions. They're much more marginalized and, and smattered. I'm not saying that they don't exist there. They certainly do, but it's not nearly to the extent that you see it with the academy. And, and, and there's, there's a reason for that. I mean, academic institutions, I think, rightfully promote different alternatives and perspectives. That's got to be a big part of it. But do I think that there's a, a financial influence there, too? Well, certainly there is. I, 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 I can't quantify that. I don't know that. I'm not an expert on it. But what I do know is I can look at one institution that says, this is acting as an outlier compared to all of our other institutions. It's not acting like the government. It's not acting like our church community or our military community or you know government. It, it is, I guess, a little bit acting like like the private sector, right? <laughs> like, look at, look at the amount of money that, that that China's throwing at our entertainment in, uh, complex because oh, yeah. they know that's how you capture the minds of Americans. Lucy, someone said uh, they put it this way about uh, elite universities that they ha- at somewhere somewhere along the way they stopped acting like educational institutions and started acting like their primary interest is protecting their endowment, and that and that that has become almost more important in some cases than 
than educating students. What role do you think that very, at the elite institutions, the very size of their endowments um, has in shaping educational policy? I think it has a role. I think, I think it's, it can't be discounted. I think that there's another thing that has happened also that has shaped educational policy, which is um, the rat race between universities and elite colleges to be number one and to stay competitive. And the, the just sort of vast industrial college complex has turned into this kind of feeding frenzy to get students in who are the most competitive students and and they're measured on all these stats like um you know do people once you admit them say yes how early do they commit uh you know what's what's your yield from the people you admit versus the people who come in and this began to translate in the last i don't know 15 years or so it was after I went was in college, I know for sure, because my dorm was not nice. But it was like to things like crazy student centers uh, and like, you know, cable televisions in every dorm room. These seem like unconnected, but it, it began, it's, it's, it became this culture of catering to the students, right? Like we need finer dining in our dining halls. We like all these sort of perks, like, you know, come to, to college, it's, it's Disneyland. And you can start to see how, uh, not that people should like not live in appropriate conditions, but you can start to see, I, I sound like I'm 90 years old right now. Um, but you can start to see how the way that, uh, the way that colleges began to try to cater to students could turn into um, a culture where uh, the students themselves are uh, think that they're in charge of the raison d'etre and why they're there, not the other way around. And some of the most disturbing uh, stuff I've seen in recent weeks have been um, and and I think it was I think it was actually a Harvard student who wrote this. Maybe it was in the Crimson somewhere. I saw it somewhere. Um, but it was a student explaining that there is just way that professors have a, a completely ridiculous expectation that they're going to do so much reading every week for their coursework, and that and that that is not why they're there, and that they are there to basically practice a life of activism and prepare for uh prepare for a life of of activism and that they are not there for the coursework and this is one student it was but it was you know the plural of anecdote is not complete data set but there was something so weird about that <laughs> yes there, that's so what you're like, talking who do about you think is in charge here <laughs> This is an example. This is that's a really good, crystal clear example of what Jonathan Haidt laid out in his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, where he and Greg Lukianoff basically cataloged the shift of the 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 uh, purpose of the institution from uh, truth seeking to social justice, or the addition of a new north star of these institutions, and you can't have both. And when you have both, they're in competition, and the students have. Uh, uh, have basically, as you say, um, become the ones in charge, and the universities, because they've they're they're for profit institutions, uh, they, they the student is the customer, and the customer is always right. Essentially, that's the principle that's playing well out here. Well put. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's 
move on. Last week, the New York Times reported that if Donald Trump retakes the White House next November, his allies are preparing to staff up a new administration with more aggressive right-wing lawyers, and they're doing away with the traditional conservatives who they think stymied his agenda in his first term. They're creating lists of lawyers who they view as both ideologically and temperamentally in line with where they would take another term in office. Uh, They're trying to reduce those pesky lawyers who were concerned about what was legal and looking for people who wouldn't raise objections to the new agenda, particularly on immigration policies and taking direct control over the Justice Department. The Times is also reporting that this effort is underway without the input of the Federalist Society, uh, a former Trump administration official who's now running a think tank with ties to uh, Trump, told the Times, the Federalist Society doesn't even know what time it is. (laughs) Two of the people leading this charge are Stephen Miller and John McEntee, uh, who led the hunt for political appointees perceived as disloyal or obstructive while Trump was in the White House. So this effort came on my radar when I heard about it on the Dispatch podcast. So Sarah Isger, who's an old friend I worked with on the Carly Fiorina campaign, who was director of the Office of Public Affairs at the Justice Department early in the Trump administration, is one of the hosts of the show. And she made this point, and she made this very good point, that they're not concerned about winning the legal cases. They're, they're planning to staff up with lawyers who will make arguments that won't actually persuade judges and that losing will allow them to claim ideological purity. So this stood out to me because it's obvious that there's a real chance here that there will be a campaign against the judiciary and thereby the very idea of the rule of law, unlike anything we have seen yet. So I put that on the table. Mike, what did you think of this strategy? Well, I mean, it's, it's brilliant as much as it's evil. It's very, it's Bannon. It's, it's Lenin, Vladimir Lenin. It's, it's anti-institutional. It's the idea of, of undermining institutions is the goal. You don't necessarily need to win. You just need to attack its credibility and attack its foundation long enough before it falls, before it craters. I think it's interesting that they're saying it, you know, publicly that, they're not even trying to win, right? There's there's a certain culture of losing that that kind of defines MAGA world, and that doesn't weaken it. I get all the, asked all the time, well, when, when are when are they going to figure out that this is a losing strategy? And it's like this isn't a losing strategy. If the strategy is to destroy the institution, this is exactly the right strategy. And I think when it's when that's the when that's you know the, uh, foremost in our minds in understanding what their objectives are, they're doing a damn good job of it. It's also, you know, make, makes clear the stakes of this next election cycle. Is, this is what we're dealing with. And look, I, th- th- we're going to be dealing with this for a while, right? There's going to be sort of these zero-sum campaigns for a while as long as this element exists in our body politic. I don't want to suggest that it's all Republicans. I think all Republicans that are voting for this are enabling it. I don't think that they all have that same philosophy of government, but it's most Republicans, you know, who are basically saying democracy doesn't really work, and and because America is never going to be what we wanted it to be again, it's essentially gone. So it doesn't matter if you wreck it or tear it down. In fact, it might be best if we just tear it down and then try and rebuild it out of the rubble, which is really what the argument is of the Stephen Millers, of the of the Stephen Bannons, of of essentially Trump. Although I don't think he could articulate it that way. That's the goal. That's the objective. That's what we're facing. Those are the stakes. Those are the table stakes here. And I think it's just going to be, uh, you know, 
it's really hard, uh, even if two-thirds of the country agrees with you, that is trying to just say, hey, how about you just don't break stuff when you've got a third of the, of the populace that is just like, no, let's just burn it down and tear it all down. Yeah, you know, at a certain point, you're realizing we're going to have to win every election from here for and forever. Otherwise, they're going to do some sort of internal damage to what's going on. And that, that's, I think, the real, the real frightening part, especially when you get to the judiciary, because you hope, at least you, you hold out hope that that's the one branch of government, that's the one area that can at least maintain some sort of objectivity. We all know that that's not true, but that's, that's the hope anyway. And that, well, it that has been better than the other branches to date. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it has held the strongest the longest, I would say. Yeah, and that's kind of what it's designed, I think, again, hopefully to do, right? It is a unique branch. We give them life appointments, at least on the Supreme Court. We we, we have there's a certain special reverence for it, which is why I think the, the current Supreme Court stuff that we've seen come out is so damaging to, to the confidence in the institution. It's just you hope that at some point the one last thing you've got standing is the court and and that's what they're attacking yeah. and that's what's so dangerous. Yeah. Lucy, thoughts? Yeah, I think that the attack on institutions is really the key here, but I also think that the the piece about the idea of what is the end goal with this litigation, this potential litigation is really really key and we can't lose sight of that because this goes back to a thing that we've talked about ad nauseum and that I'm sure a lot of listeners have talked about around their dinner tables, which is this idea that the last decade, what we've really seen is is a, a, a breakdown of our mores, right? A breakdown of, of, um, of form and decorum and that we have come to realize how much more we were relying on those mores than we might have realized and how much of our democracy is actually held together by good people being law-abiding and doing the right thing and less held together by absolute uh, laws or rules. And, And in a way, you both need a democracy to have some very strong structures at its core, but you also need it to be loose at its core because if it's not loose at its core, it can quickly become not a democracy, right? It have you have to give people a lot of range to um, exercise their beliefs and act out their positions in a range of ways, even that are appalling. Because if you don't, then you're uh, suddenly a country that's putting people in jail for expressing uh, viewpoints that are unpopular, and then you're not a democracy. And so it's this. It's kind of, it's really, really a tricky needle to thread. But I think that I, I happened to give a uh, guest talk to, a guest lecture to um, some undergraduates at UPenn this week. And we were talking about uh, ca- campaigning and lo and behold, the 2024 race came up, who knew? And uh, someone said, how is it even possible? Some a young political science student said, how is it even possible that Trump could continue to be indicted and weather this storm in such a way that it's not hurting him at all? Mm. Like, how can mm-hmm. this be? But it is because of what Mike has just flagged, right? Like the the distrust in institutions and the distrust in our judicial institutions 
that is a feature, not a bug of this of this operation. And it is not just our judicial judicial institutions. It's many different types of institutions, institute, you know, education media. institutions. We media. just had a whole segment a couple of weeks ago about the massive fuck up at the New York Times over the bombing of the hospital in in Gaza. And it was wrong. And and it was underscores the point that people are right in many cases to have distrust about our institutions, especially some of the most prestigious ones. Yeah, there was yesterday, uh, Ivanka Trump was testifying at, you know, the family's latest court case uh, in New York. And she was asked about a particular mega donor. And this mega donor, apparently, whom I hadn't really known about, but is a person who was a big Trump backer and a longtime Republican backer and is a billionaire businessman. And this person, people who are close to him, he's involved in Trump goings on, people who were close to him described how he was this very upstanding person who just over time has become a person who now believes that he cannot trust mainstream media, right? And this is a person who himself, it's one guy, but he is a person who is a, you know, quote, unquote, unquote, elite himself, right? Like he is part of the institutions and he has decided he's gotten whatever in his brain that he can't trust the mainstream media. This is, I think, what has also happened to Tucker Carlson. Like people think that Tucker is, is just this super, super cynical guy who's doing this, all that he's done to make money. That's possible. And that may have been part of it at the start, but I believe Tucker himself believes that his cause and mission is righteous now. And he really, really believes that the that the scales have fallen from his eyes, the the curtain, and that he now sees that that this is we're all part of this system. And I think that actually a lot of Fox anchors are not people who think that they're just doing something cynical. Some of them definitely, and we know that from from things like what came out in Discovery with Dominion, but a lot of them, they believe they are on this, they are part of this massive movement of people who are trying to shake the rest of us to say, you're not seeing this. And things like the New York Times event of a few weeks ago certainly helps that narrative, but, but it is, the goal is an erosion of our institutions, including the judiciary, no question. Yeah, I They're mean, look, I have, yeah, there, yeah. Um, I it, this is the the fact that there is a problem here is is a is something that I think the level headed people in this discourse are going to have to reckon with. I mean, over the last three four weeks, the number of times I have said to our producer here on our editorial calls and with the team. Oh my God, I can't believe that the New York Times printed this, or I can't believe that they reported X. As I was listening to the um the Daily, for example, about the sort of the, the debrief on this New York Times poll, um, they flat out stated something false about whether or not this poll reflected uh anything um post the uh Hamas invasion in Israel. And they said, no, absolutely not. Unequivocally, it doesn't. That's patently false if you look at the dates of the poll. And so, how could they I, know? I, how, it's their poll. How could they know this? And I can, I played back the transcript, I played back the, the audio for my team. And I was like, I can't believe they're saying this and it's absolutely false. 
so I've begun to see these things in in places I I would hope not to see them. And there is a very real problem. These institutions are squandering their own trust. And, yes. and it is also true that there is a Leninist campaign to exacerbate and accelerate that process and, and use the vacuum of trust to their advantage. And both of these things are true. And it's, what, and it's something that I think we need to be very clear-eyed about if we're, ever, if we're going to navigate the storm ahead and come out the other side with institutions that, um, that work for us, that work for the information age. Yeah, well, can I offer one quick thing there? Because I think sure. you, you said something really insightful, and that is in a healthy society, uh, when an institution is failing, and, and they do throughout human history, social institutions fail, those that are opposed to it try to reform it or build something better and more credible. The, the, what we're seeing now is 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 using those weaknesses to topple it, and then those institutions in their overcompensation double down almost from a partisan perspective, and you see it on both sides. You you just you just very eloquently articulated what's going on in the media correctly. We've talked a lot about what's happening in the academy. We also see it on the right with the church community, right? It's not yeah. that it's not there's there's this refusal to see obvious errors and mistakes and bad behavior. But there's almost this doubling down as a way be- because they've become partisanized. And, and the, when you partisanize your institutions, there's no good ending to that. Like it's all, it's all just a matter of how, how much damage they can sustain before they go away. And that's what I think one of the really scary things about what's happening in American society today is we attack each other's institutions as partisan elements. And, and, and instead of trying to reform and fix them and recognizing that they, they serve some purpose to a broader goal, we view them as an, as an attack on our way of life or an attack on our country or an attack on, on what America really stands for. And both sides, you know, unfortunately engage in it. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you are watching. Mike, what'd you bring? I hate to be a broken record, but I, I can't keep my eyes off of China and what's happening with the Chinese economy because I think it's just such a big driver. You and I were sharing some information about the the divestment from foreign investment, uh, people pulling dollars out of there. There's clearly this decoupling that is happening on behalf of the Biden administration. And China's got just so many economic problems at precisely the moment when they're um, you know, creating these near misses with ships and planes in in the South China Sea. Uh, I don't know if if it's posturing, if the military posturing is designed to engage in a direct conflict because she needs it. I don't know if he's doing it because um, it's a distraction. I, I don't know if it's a bluff. I don't. I, all I know is that it's happening, and with the, uh, the 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 fortunes of the Chinese economic outlook have turned so dramatically and so quickly, it's hard to not think that there isn't something destabilizing happening internally in China. And I don't necessarily mean a coup or anything like that, but there's just something the the the, the global economic forecast with what is happening with China is 
is just breathtaking. The, the, the collapse of their, their two largest real estate investment trusts, the, the, the essentially the collapse of, of so many of their foreign holdings in places where they've been extracting resources, the demographic uh, challenges that they're, they're, they're finally you know, realizing, unemployment sitting at probably 30, 35, maybe 40% with young people, um, the, the inability to pull out of the COVID miasma that they've created. It's, there's just, it's just not a good place. We're not getting good data out of it, but all of the indicators are pointing to something very destructive happening with China's economy. And it, it's gonna, it, it can't but affect the way it's going to start lashing out at the world. Yeah. And just one chaser to all of that is that one of the ways this is very dangerous to the United States is China is the number one or number two largest holder of U.S. debt. And we're going to need to issue a lot more debt with wars on the horizon. So, Lucy, what'd you bring? I brought something kind of heavy, uh, which is that this week in Phoenix, a a uh, a jury went into deliberation in a case that is the second time um, such a case have, has been tried. Um, and the TLDR of the case is that it is, it is a um, Justice Department criminal prosecution of uh, journalists who were independent journalists um, who were part of a, a publication called the Phoenix New Times, but New Times wound up becoming a much larger media company that owned uh, independent newspapers all over the country. Denver has one, I think that's called Westworld, uh, The Village Voice. There's one in Miami. So this is a a, a large independent newspaper company. Um, and this newspaper company had a piece of their, their business called Backpage. And Backpage was a classifieds website um, that had been founded in, I think, the early 2000s that was kind of like Craigslist. You know, users could come in and they could post ads to say they're selling a car or, you know, they need a roommate, whatever. Um, and there was also a category for adult services. And that could be um, a range of things. Um, there was a lot of downward pressure uh, on Craigslist arrival to close its adult services, which Craigslist ultimately did in 2010, because tons of state attorney generals and others were were coming and saying this is facilitating um, prostitution or sex trafficking. And Backpage really resisted doing this. Um, They ultimately uh, uh, closed their adult section, I think in 2017. But the Department of Justice was really, really uh, focused on bringing Backpage down and then bringing down uh, the journalists who were behind this website. And so they arrested them and and took them to trial. Uh, And ultimately, uh, there was a mistrial in, um, I think, in in, in 2021. Um, And... uh, so it is now being retried. In the time since, one of the co-defendants, a guy named Jim Larkin, who was a co-founder of the New Times and of this media, mini-media empire, um, committed suicide in July. Um, so the trial had been moved to later this fall. But it's, it's, a, it's now with the jury, and it's a really horrible case. Um, and it really comes down to, and I'm not a lawyer, but it really comes down to 
whether or not the journalists and the people at the company, independent journalists who were using this as a revenue stream to power independent journalists, had intent to promote either child sex trafficking or prostitutions or whether or not they were just publishers of people putting ads up. And so it also really comes down to um, whether or not they were just putting ads up or whether they were editing the ads to make them more palatable to pass muster. And there are some things that are pretty complicated. But in my opinion, and obviously this is made much more sad by the fact that one of the defendants has taken his own life as he's been taken through this case. But in in my opinion, there are some particularly disturbing things about this case, one of which is that uh, the the Department of Justice, the, the prosecutors, the federal prosecutors moved to um, to make it so that the First Amendment couldn't be used as a defense, which is pretty worrisome to me. Wow. And then now, even this week, while the jury has been in deliberations, some other journalists who are trying to cover this story requested access and copies of exhibits of these ads, many of which were accessed in Wayback Time Machine um, that became exhibits in the case. And the federal prosecutors are moving to seal those so that journalists who are trying to cover this case can't get access to them. So Reason Magazine has had a lot of amazing coverage of this that is very important. And they have had great coverage of, of this kind of these kinds of cases more generally. And obviously no one here wants child sex trafficking, but child sex trafficking also often is this term that gets used as a boogeyman around sex work generally. And sex work is a whole other category unto itself. But the idea that these journalists, in my opinion, were somehow at all complicit and anything like child sex trafficking is absolutely appalling. There's also, it's not the it's not true. It's not true. This is a moralistic, just awful prosecution that is ruining people's lives, has caused a man to take his own life. Um, there's an independent journalist named Stephen Lemons who has also been great on this. He has a very active Twitter profile where he's giving blow by blows. So we're waiting for a verdict now. Um, but it's one of these cases where, you know, you, you get kind of, you can get kind of fixated on something and it it is just so heavy and it is so disturbing. Oof. Oof. And the fact that they can't get access to the actual evidence. Insane. Insane. Wow. Okay, I've got three, I'll try to make them quick things um, that I'm watching. One that that I think just need to be on people's radar. One is that, you know, you'll recall the House Oversight Committee um, investigating Hunter Biden and his business dealings and their attempt to demonstrate that Joe Biden had something to do with it or actually that he benefited in some way. Um, to Until very recently, there's been no evidence of that. They haven't been able to produce anything. Uh, but they have now released some new evidence, which was a $40,000 payment to Joe Biden, which was allegedly uh, allegedly his laundered cut of the $400,000 business deal, about which Hunter infamously said they were reserving, quote, 10% for the big guy. So it is exactly 10% of this $400,000 business deal. Um, so you can expect to hear more of that because they have now subpoenaed Hunter Biden, James Biden, and others. Those testimonies are due late November, early December. Hunter Biden will be in uh, December, December 13th. 
The second story I want to keep on your radar is the 14th Amendment cases, which we've talked about a bit. Uh, these are the attempts to disqualify Trump uh, from holding office. The Minnesota case, which is uh, was the uh, the one where basically anybody in the state has standing to bring uh, to bring a petition to the Supreme Court, has just been dismissed, and it was dismissed because it was relating to the primary. The court was very careful to say uh, they're they're dismissing this uh, this this case because it has to do with the primary, but um, they welcome the petitioners to come back for the general. Uh, in Colorado, the closing arguments are on November 15th, um, and they'll issue a ruling shortly after that. So the bottom line is these cases are moving forward at sort of more or less as we would expect, and pretty soon they will make their way to the Supreme Court. I just want to remind people that these are happening, uh, and eventually we'll have a ruling that we'll have to uh, deal with. Uh, and then thirdly, there's this developing story I'm watching very closely about the photojournalists who were present during the Hamas invasion of Israel and massacre of Israelis. Honest Reporting, which is a nonprofit that monitors for bias against Israel, put out a report on Wednesday about some of the freelance photographers who were credited by sources like the AP, CNN, and Reuters who were on the ground during the Hamas attack. It has raised some really serious questions about whether they had prior knowledge of the attack or were coordinating with Hamas in some way. One of these photographers whose work was used by the AP and CNN took a video of himself standing in front of a burning tank and took a photo with the mastermind of the October 7th attack. In that photo, the Hamas leader is kissing him on the cheek. After the news outlets released statements, Honest Reporting clarified on X saying that it didn't accuse the news outlets of colluding with Hamas, but raised serious ethical questions around the news outlets paying their freelancers who may have had prior knowledge that the attack was going to happen. And Reuters and AP have also said that the earliest pictures they have from freelancers were taken more than an hour after the attacks began. Bottom line is, there's a lot of smoke here. There's a lot of questions that are unanswered. And at the very minimum, uh, this severely strikes, I think, at trust in media, as we have been discussing quite a lot. But um, I'm watching this carefully. Certainly, there will be more thorough investigations, but uh, watch this space. Before we flip over to politicology, where <laughs> I can't believe we've gone the entire show without talking about the Republican debate, uh, which is what is coming up next. Where can we find you on the internet these days, Mike? Find me on threads at M-Y-K-E-M-A-D-R-I-D, Mike Madrid with a Y. You're liking it better than X. Uh, you know, it's uh, the world okay. is splintered, so I'll take what you can get. Okay. Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode. 